Hello, and welcome back to the EcoCar podcast, presented by AVTCs and powered by Argonne National Laboratory, General Motors, the U.S. Department of Energy, and MathWorks. Today, we'll be discussing the future of EV battery development and electrification from the perspective of the government sector, an area of focus that has been on top of mind lately with numerous announcements. Our discussion will feature Stephen Boyd, Program Manager of Batteries and Electrification at the U.S. Department of Energy, and Dr. Venkat Srinivasan, Director of Argonne Collaborative Center for Energy Storage Science at Argonne National Laboratory. My chat with Stephen and Venkat should get you charged up after the battery knowledge they plug in here. Let's throw it over to the conversation now. Steven and Venkat, thank you both for joining the EcoCar podcast today to discuss a topic that has been very top of mind for everyone as battery development and electrification work their way into the mainstream. Let's give the listeners a little bit of background on each of you. Uh, what led you to your current position today and your background experience with batteries? Uh, so Stephen is an AVTC veteran, an advocate that has taken his talents to the U.S. Department of Energy, where he currently serves as Program Manager of Batteries and Electrifications in D.C., Stephen participated in Future Truck as an undergrad, and the EcoCar Challenge X is a graduate student at Virginia Tech, and has been one of the biggest advocates from AVTCs in EcoCars since he entered the workforce. Stephen has also held various titles related to vehicle technologies within the U.S. Department of Energy. Thanks for joining us today, Stephen. Thanks, Lucas. That was a nice introduction. Our second guest today is Dr. Venkat Srinivasan, Director of Argonne Collaborative Center for Energy Storage Science or ACCESS at Argonne National Laboratory. ACCESS provides the vision and coordinates the energy storage programs at Argonne and serves as the point of entry for industry to take advantage of the unique capabilities and facilities at Argonne to solve their problems in energy storage. Dr. Srinivasan is a former staff scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. His research interest is in developing next generation batteries for use in vehicle and grid applications, among other applications as well. In addition to his research, Dr. Srinivasan is interested in moving technologies to market and has been exploring ways to develop an ecosystem focused on batteries to accelerate technology commercialization. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Srinivasan. Thank you so much for the kind introduction, Lucas. So the EV momentum in 2021 really has been palpable to everyone as mobility is entering the mainstream. Uh, however, when I look at the mainstream, I realize there may not be realistic expectations about where batteries are and what kind of battery development uh, can be happening now and in the near future. Uh, Stephen, if you could start us out, in your opinion, do you think battery tech is ready for the growing appetite for EVs? I think a lot of the technology is there. It just may not be in current production cells. And so we're really, I think, seeing the first and second generation uh, of the technology that's kind of ready for prime time that's in vehicles now. And that's only going to get better, uh, especially I'd say over the next three or four years, as more and more models come into the market, we'll really see it kind of come into its own and be either maybe more compelling or competitive to, you know, from a sort of vehicle standpoint. Yeah, I want to echo what Stephen said. You know, compared to five years ago to today, I think we're seeing a lot more EVs on the road. 
I'm seeing my neighbors start to buy EVs, which is really a fantastic sign of things to come. And I think to, to echo what Stephen said, I think what we're going to see is every year goes by, more and more of these technologies are going to reach the market, get to the manufacturing scale, and the cost of these batteries are going to come down, and we're going to see a lot more electric cars on the roads, I think. So now, uh, Venkat, just to follow up on that, I know the question that comes to a lot of people's minds when they hear about neighbors buying more and more EVs, how far out uh, do you, each of you, think that we really are from uh, a full mainstream EV of the market? Yeah, to kind of throw some numbers at you, right, it feels like where we need to be with uh, battery costs is we have to be half of where we are today. So if you can cut the cost of batteries down by a factor of two, most people can start afford, uh, can afford to buy an electric car. So what we're seeing today is that these cars are a bit more expensive than they ought to be. So a certain segment of the population is able to buy these cars. So that's the first big thing we have to solve. I'll say the second big thing we have to solve is charging time. Uh, you know, it's very difficult for many people to be sitting around waiting for many hours for these batteries to charge up. I think the ultimate goal is we want to have batteries charging in say five minutes or 10 minutes. That's a tough thing to do. But I think that's where we need to be if you want to get, uh, you know, I guess, parity with gasoline cars. Yeah, I, I think the cost point is a really good one, Venkat. Uh, actually, uh, at uh, also at Argonne, but done by uh, a different researcher, we uh, map sort of the cost of batteries every year. It's a modeled exercise, and we put that at $143 uh, per uh, per kilowatt hour this past year in 2020. And so a two-year metric, about half of that, maybe 80 or so, is definitely something that, that we see being able to achieve kind of uh, in, in, I'll say, the next few years. It, it might be more like six or eight years or so. Um, but that's it's definitely a possibility and certainly one of the things that's going to drive that sort of mass adoption of vehicles that we'd like to see. Uh, in, in terms of fast charging, uh, agreed. We just had a discussion the other day. It's like, well, do we really know how fast it, you know, how, how fast does it take to fill up a tank on a regular car, right? And someone asked if there was any data on that. And it's such a hard question, right? Like you normally don't think about it, but it happens pretty quick. Um, if you have a bigger tank, like an SUV or something, it probably takes a lot longer, right? Like the gas pump, you know, just flows what it flows. And so it's just one of those things that happens fast enough that a lot of people don't think about it. But, and so I think that sort of, applies to the EV charge as well. And we want high power charging, we want fast charging for vehicles because we, we know that people don't wanna wait around and charge, but exactly how long that needs to be is kind of still, I think, a question mark, right? It's, I mean, at the end of the day, it's really up to the consumer to determine uh, what they're willing to do. The benefit, of course, is that we know uh, electricity is available in a lot of places, and so and cars can charge slow or fast. You can do bidirectional, right, and and help support the grid or provide other grid services. None of that can you do with fuel. So there's so many other benefits, um, but agreed, fast charging also important. Yeah, and and those are both fat, fantastic points. And Stephen, I think to follow up uh, and to ask you real quick. Uh, do you think you both just identified cost and charging kind of as the two primary roadblocks and advances that need to happen before uh, we might see more and more EVs out on the road? Do you see any other roadblocks outside of cost and charging that pre potentially prevent additional roadblocks uh, that really the industry and EV innovators need to address before we can start seeing that come to fruition? Right, right. I mean, I think there's probably a few you could consider. Um, 
I know we think about sort of the overall battery supply chain as one of them. Um, you know, you're talking about a lot of uh, literally a lot of materials, a lot of different uh, volume of these things coming together that just aren't produced in, in that amount right now. And so that's, that's a pretty significant challenge, both on the cell manufacturing, but also sourcing those materials. I'll add to that recycling on the back end, right? We want to plan for like a full life cycle of, of the vehicle. So that's, I think, um, sort of an open question or maybe even an opportunity uh, in terms of what you can do with uh, end-of-life vehicle batteries. I'll also add just access to vehicle charging is one to think about as well. Again, the electric grid is sort of pervasive and we come to expect it being reliable and always there. And that's a good thing, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's always a place for you to charge a vehicle. Um, so I, I think those are you know two other things that are important in in this equation. Yeah, I mean Stephen hit the nail on the head, right? I mean the supply of materials is something that you know battery people are really worried about. We are trying a variety of things like removing these precious metals or critical materials like cobalt and nickel from from the batteries. But right now that is an extremely difficult challenge, and recycling certainly helps us. I was kind of thinking about the third point Stephen made about charge uh, and accessibility. This is a real issue for many people that don't live in sort of, you know, houses where they can go plug in in the garage, right? So we have to think, I think, deeply, especially about communities where there might be very few places to plug in. How do we get charging stations there? What strikes me is that, you know, batteries are one of these uh, complicated uh, things where there are multiple metrics you have to hit simultaneously. So we've kind of bought out a few of them. By the way, you cannot uh, give up on a one metric just because you're trying to get another one, right? So, you know, you want to get the cost down, but you also want to maintain the 350 mile, 400 mile range. You also want to get the 10 years of uh, battery life. You also need to get it to fast charge. So it's the and that becomes a real issue, I think, getting it all to happen simultaneously. That's one of the reasons why I think uh, things tend to go a little bit slower than just sort of focusing on one metric. Which brings me to one point that I think is also important for us to get widespread adoption, which is manufacturing scale. We are not making as many batteries as we ought to be making. And it takes a lot of money to build a battery factory, right? I mean, you know, Tesla invested $5 billion to build a gigafactory. And that's not something that everybody can come up with. So I think that's another challenge that we have to think about is access to capital and the fact that it costs so much to build these battery factories. You know, the fast charge and life, calendar life and cycle life for batteries is really tough. To me, I think is a, is what I recall, at least from EcoCar, it's like squeezing the balloon, right? You can squeeze it here and it just gets bigger there. And so, you know, I, I think just relating it to EcoCar, right, is what makes it a good challenge. You, you can't just have like one thing good on the vehicle. It has to all be really good. So start engineering. Like it's a hard problem and that's why it's a good problem, but it's, it's a hard one, yeah. And so it seems, uh, Venkat and Steven, both of what you just said, one of the major constraints is almost caused by the variant out there and the amount of different kinds of battery packs uh, and all of them trying to be manufactured on their own, slightly different designs for different manufacturers. Uh, and one of the EcoCar headline sponsors, General Motors, has unveiled recently their Ultium battery. And the intent there is to really have a pack that can serve across car makers brands and they intend to license the technology to serve others as well. Uh, do you think that that model of shared technology and shared IP is something that other car makers will follow suit with and adopt more of a common battery platform that could eventually help drive down cost and allow for those giga style factories to be more common? 
Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of Lucas, you just said the giga style factories, right? So we, you know, if you if you take a start taking a look at some of the numbers, if you're willing to assume that a a regular car or vehicle or is has something like a hundred kilowatt hour battery, which in the future I think is is possible in terms of like three hundred mile range or something like that, you know, it it only takes a hundred thousand cars at a hundred kilowatt hours each to get to a 10 gigawatt hour production, right? So it's not that many cars to stand up your own gigafactory, really, uh, when you consider that at least in the US, the light duty sales are something like 17 million every year right now. But that being said, yeah, I, I think there's still likely a lot of potential for either sharing of IP or getting to maybe some of these uh, common standards or commonalities across vehicles that can lead to, you know, whether it's uh, savings or sharing of technology. I think it's, you know, I think we're just starting to get to the point where we're, again, on the cusp of all these vehicles coming, coming out and manufacturers becoming more comfortable with the technology. And so for sure, I, you know, I, I think we'll, we'll see these kind of themes emerge. I want to echo what Steven said in the very end, right? This, we are in the early stages of this technology, so I think different people are trying different things. I mean, we've seen Tesla going after the cylindrical cells. I think GM and LG are wanting to do pouch cells. And so there are two different form factors that have kind of emerged. But it's not to say that any one is bad or the other is you know, better. I think it's just different companies trying different things. But it's also a signature of where we are in the technology evolution, it feels like. I think as time goes on, more and more people are going to say, well, maybe I'll leverage something somebody else has done and try to make it better. We are seeing collaborations on the verticals, uh, you know, LG, GM, Panasonic, Tesla. And we might see more of that where companies are tying up at the material scale, maybe even in the mining scale so that they can cut costs. I think slowly as the market evolves and becomes more mature, we might see it across car companies also. And I do think that standard development is very important, right? That's what uh, makes it faster for adoption, makes it uh, you know, lower cost. And I think it's something that you know, we, you know, we should be thinking about it from a governmental perspective as to how do we drive standards so that uh, these things get faster and better. And Venkat, I, I do want to uh, kind of probe a little bit something you just didn't mention there. And it was about the relationships that are developing between manufacturers of different kinds and at different processes along the way. For EcoCar in particular, it's, it's a unique project in the sense that it does sit at the kind of the intersection of industry, academia, and government. And so I was wondering if you could just speak to how you see those relationships between industry, academia, and government continuing to evolve in the mobility sector. Yeah, first thing I should say is that I am passionate about ecosystems because I think that's the way that big things happen. I should say, and a shout out to the Department of Energy, frankly, the kinds of things we're seeing today in the battery market and in the vehicle market, in the electric vehicle market, is because of 30 years, 40 years of R&D that the Department of Energy has been fostering, right? They've supported academia, who ultimately are the people that come out and graduate and you know have created companies. These are the guys who've gone on and you know created the Teslas of the world and made sure that those batteries are getting made. They also have supported companies directly, right? So that you know they can go off and start to innovate on things that uh, can be you know sort of a, a different from the kinds of batteries we're making today. So first thing to say is that you know there's a huge role for the government to play along with the academia and industry. And I think if you kind of look at the United States, right, uh, you know, you could do a cost-driven market where you're trying to commoditize the, the battery to the point where it costs nothing. 
But I think a better way to approach it is an innovation-driven market where you're trying to very quickly make something better than what you had in the previous year. And for those kinds of innovation-driven technologies, these collaborations become very, very important. So I think that as we look to the future, we're going to have to do more and more of these, you know, government, private, public kind of partnerships, academia, industry coming together. And I think the Department of Energy, which has already played an enormous role in this, will have to continue to play a role uh, to sort of foster that, I think. Yeah, and let me pass along a high five here to Lucas over the uh, over the podcast. I mean, EcoCar has really been building a lot of these. It's the same thing you mentioned, like ecosystems, uh, the eco family now that it's EcoCar. Uh, ABTCs have been building this community or building on this community for, uh, I mean, just you know, just as many years. And uh, it's it's amazing to see, you know, the, the same folks stick around and and new you know uh, new students come in every year and it. It is, you know, it is exactly what you say, right? It's building uh, these relationships. It's working um, for a long time, you know, on on these technologies. As we said, it's a hard problem, right? That makes it, as I said, it makes it a good problem um, because there's a lot uh, to consider, right? It's not, it's not an easy overnight solve. I think it, there is really a bit of that uh, community aspect in terms of everyone gathering around a good problem and getting to work and doing good work and working at it for a long time and to see you know vehicles on the road and and everything like that now is uh, it's kind of amazing when you take a few steps back from it thinking back right when you when you have silos it could be i guess okay but it's not as much fun as sort of learning about what everybody else is doing and doing it together and there is something really fun about doing it and it's a sort of this team environment which ultimately gets you to where you need to be and uh, you know, I guess EcoCar is probably one of the great examples of that uh, in, the, in the space. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have like our NASA mission control moment where there's like a one landing and it's like, you know, celebration all around. But um, I don't know. Maybe we should uh, maybe we should try to organize something. And <laughs> or it's too soon for that. Right. That's what we're saying. It's too soon for that. But maybe in the future. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and it's it's something where and uh, one of you had mentioned the fact that our students and EcoCar students or students in any kind of design competition alike, they're in that pressure cooker of an environment where it's a complex engineering problem. It's high octane, but they're enjoying it and they're enjoying the automotive aspect of the complexity that a vehicle can bring. However, when some of these students leave that environment of working hands on on a vehicle in an automotive environment and they look towards what they're going to do when they graduate, there can be a notion that government may not be the best sector for them to get into uh, coming right out of that kind of pressurized environment. However, for the two of you and for myself included, we have found a way to continue our passion for automotive technologies and advancement of that sector, however, government or government adjacent. And so for each of you personally, and if Stephen, if you wouldn't mind answering first, what gets you excited to work in the government sector and why is it that you have continued on doing the work that you have? Sure, sure. It's, it's a really good point, right? Um, I, I think the answer there is um, certainly at least from Department of Energy, the, the sort of um, outlook and scope you get um, is, is, I'd say, unparalleled just because you know, you're working not only with brilliant researchers at the labs, you know, folks at universities, professors and, and students alike at the universities, including through things like EcoCar, right, which is a bit of all of that. And um, as in addition to 
you know, a lot of the industry folks who, you know, are in the business of, of making great products and doing some of this uh, work and kind of realizing a lot of the benefits, right? And so um, we often see technologies come from that sort of idea cradle of inception to, you know, all the way to real products and, uh, you know, having effects on the, the world we live in. And so that's, um, I, I think it's pretty exciting to work at a place where that's that's your job, really, right? If you're if you're doing well, like you're able to to sort of play a role in all those different stages uh, of development. And so, you know, primarily at, at DOE, at least the the team I manage, we're technology managers, right? And so that's the that's the idea. I always like to think you're you're sort of uh, sort of shepherding some of these good ideas along and trying to help really get get a technology that's going to be effective and going to get to the goals and impacts we need yeah i mean no i'll just give you my personal example right so i i was like everybody else went through school and you know i was doing what i did in graduate school did something interesting in batteries and then i went to lawrence berkeley national lab and what i realized was that what i was doing was absolutely interesting it was it fit very very well i was working on a particular battery material everybody was excited about it I was funded by the Department of Energy. I, I call myself the child of DOE just because, you know, they, they got me started in this field to a large extent. But what I realized was that there was a world much bigger than the world I was focusing on, right? It was not about just my material that I was working on. It was about the battery cell, about the pack, integrating that into a vehicle, the supply chain, the recycling, the charging infrastructure. I mean, there were so many facets that were just not something that I had thought about or even known existed. And what I came to realize was that when you start viewing the world in that lens of all the things that have to come together, all of a sudden your perspective just, you know, it's kind of, a, you know, it blows your mind, right? Or the number of things you got to think about. And I think that's what the DOE at least gave me, right? It's a chance to not just think about one single problem, but that overall landscape that one has to sort of, it all has to come together. And I think, you know, if, if I ask myself what has changed in my life in the last 20 years, it's really that. It's the fact that I went from being a researcher that did something interesting in academia uh, as a student to somebody who has this broader perspective on what might be needed to get these technologies on the road. And if you're looking at impact, I think that broader perspective is something the government is really good at providing. And I think that's what uh, at least gets me really excited, right? And, you know, I work on two things today, very closely with uh, Stephen's program, one on solid state batteries, which you know we all think is going to be very important for the future, and one on fast charging, which we also think is going to be very important for the future. And that kind of cutting edge work only comes because of involvement with the governmental entities that are looking to see how to make the biggest impact. Yeah, and and there is something I do that both of you touched on that I would love I'd love to ask because I know that the students and the listeners are going to want to know. But each of you spoke broadly to what excites you about what, what the work that you do. But I'm wondering specifically, is there a project in the past, present, or one that you hope is coming up in the future that particularly excites you for the future of your job and the future of the market as a whole? Yeah, I could go first by kind of repeating something I said in the, the previous one, which is, you know, I find two things that I'm, do, that I'm doing with the Department of Energy to be extremely important, timely, and I think uh, exciting. One is uh, this idea that we have to charge batteries in whatever the right time might be, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, but much faster than how we are charging today. So there's a multinational lab team that is working on this problem. And I find that to be an absolutely important problem, really challenging work, but if you're successful, can have huge impact. 
The second one is, uh, you know, I think many of us are passionate about removing the liquid electrolyte in the battery. The liquid electrolyte is the one that is flammable, and we want to move it to a solid. And if we do that, we can also integrate some new materials. So I, I have a project that, uh, you know, actually I've been working on for the last six years on what we call solid-state batteries, looking at why do they not work and how can we find ways to solve them. Really excited about that. Again, hugely impactful, difficult problem, but if you succeed, hugely impactful. Yeah, I'll, I'll mention two examples and kind of pick up where you left off in GAP, which is the solid state batteries. We, you know, we have a, a separate research project, Battery 500, which is really looking at how do you get to 500 watt hours per kilogram. And, you know, that would be, that it would pretty much be double what we're looking at today. And, um, you know, that could just have huge impacts in terms of battery electric vehicle looks like and the sort of packaging you can do on a vehicle and overall vehicle weight could go down, including keeping the same range. You can even think that um, in terms of our like really hard problem for cycle life, right? When you have a battery that that's, that is that large, you're only going to be putting so many cycles in the battery now. Uh, just based, you know, just based on mileage accumulation alone. So that could be somewhat helpful. So it, it just big, big possibilities there um, and, and lots of hard problems along the way, I'll also mention. And then the next one is a little bit uh, from, from my ba uh, background in history previously, which is not batteries, but wideband gap semiconductors. Um, it's the same sort of trajectory and story. The U.S. has, has had a long sort of investment cycle and, uh, and timeline there in terms of getting these, uh, these more advanced power semiconductors uh, sort of up and ready. Uh, they're being incorporated into vehicles now with the promise of both increasing range, so improving the actual efficiency of the onboard drive systems, which we've seen a bit of, um, but I think there's even further they can go. And increased maturity will, will probably get us more, um, both there in terms of, as I mentioned, efficiency and range on the vehicle, um, but also in terms of uh, drive system size and just the, again, mass and weight. I, I think we can get that uh, way down. We actually have a, a program that's targeting getting an entire, so the drive system appropriate for a vehicle right now, maybe it's, it's something like 12 liters, like the size of like your carry-on suitcase or something like that, maybe getting that down to three liters uh, the, the power of the vehicle, and that's like the size of a shoebox. That's, again, you know, some pretty amazing stuff you can do with some of these technologies that are in the pipeline and development. And uh, that's, you know, the story that we hope to tell. Yeah, I just want to quickly say to the previous question about why should you work in the government sector? This conversation that Stephen just explained, and I learned something on sort of other things that are also very important, is, you know, something that a perspective that comes from, you know, being on the governmental side of things, I think. Yeah, and and... I can speak from personal experience as well. The The fact that we're able to have this conversation today with the three of us points to the collaborative aspect that the government can facilitate uh, in bringing loosely connected individuals who are passionate about a similar concept together for a collective greater good. Uh, and so that's it's definitely been highlighted by both of you and something that I see every day uh, with Argon and with EcoCar. Uh, and so we are, we are getting towards the end of our conversation today, but before we conclude, we do like uh, to offer up some words of wisdom uh, from our guests to our students and to the listeners. Uh, and so if you can just go back in time with me on a little time travel exercise and put yourself back in your old college dorm room, whether that's in Blacksburg or Columbia, and you, if you could have a five-minute conversations with your former self, what is the single piece of advice that you would like to give to yourself back then? Uh, that's an excellent question. 
I think I would say be more collaborative. And I mean that just in terms of extending your reach, working with classmates, which I think I learned how to do better in my junior and senior years. Um, but, uh, you know, just try to bring in more people and like whether it's a study group or whether it's, you know, actually working with the, you know, with the design team, the senior design team in my case, um, you know, grow your grow your circle, grow your ecosystem as we we're talking about, right? I think those those sort of collaborative relationships, uh, even friendships, whatever, um, really important to, to have. And in college, it's a great time to do that kind of stuff too, uh, just because it's the, you know, the sort of environment you're in, that learning environment, right? Yeah, in my case, I guess one of the most important things I would probably tell myself is to work on something that really matters for the world. Uh, I did some interesting stuff in graduate school, but it certainly wasn't as impactful as it could have been if I had known what would be most impactful. There are a lot of problems we got to solve in this world. Uh, you know, electrification of cars is a great example of that. And I think working on problems that can have a big impact to me seems like a very important thing to do. I do want to sort of pull thread that what Stephen said, right? When I look at problems today, it requires large teams. Things are not at a stage where a single person can go off and kind of solve it all by themselves. So collaborating ways of working together is extremely important. And, you know, Stephen is exactly right. The right time to do this is, is in school, where you learn how to work with others, learn how to bring different skill sets together, how do you play nice in the sandbox or the playground or whatever the right word may be. It's going to be absolutely useful for the rest of our lives, right? Because this is our life. We are going to be finding ways, working with others to solve big problems. And I think if we can find those collaborative opportunities to work on solving the sort of the, the present, you know, problems of the time, and I think we'll all do very, very well. Yeah, and, and I do I do want to just echo both of their points about the collaborative piece of this for for our EcoCar students listening. Uh, this is this can be on your own team, but this can also be across uh, other teams within the competition or any students that are in design competitions working with other universities who are trying to solve similar problems uh, can typically tend to yield even better results than trying to work within your own team. Uh, and so as we are coming to a close, Stephen and Venkat, uh, I do want to thank you both very much for joining the EcoCar podcast today. And I guess if each of you could just uh, give us any parting words for our listener or uh, if there's anything they should be on the lookout for that you guys are currently working on that may be hitting the news soon. Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. So, And I'm, I'm hoping that everybody listening to this uh, sees the excitement that we all feel for electrification. Maybe the parting words is that this area is going to blossom, right? The next 10, 15, 20 years, there's going to be so much activity in electrification. This is the time to be in this field. So I'm excited about it. I hope the students are excited about it. I would urge them to take the time to solve the big problems that we have to solve. I couldn't agree more. Um, this, you know, the, the students that are, that are listening to this, right? You're... Um, you're putting yourself in the right position. I would, you know, kind of follow follow your uh, follow your instincts in the area. Find something that you are passionate about. I mean, even inside of what we're talking about here, electric vehicles and batteries, there's so many different aspects, right? There's such depth there. Uh, you may not find that depth as part of EcoCar, but just being being involved in that and you know, kind of following your nose, I think, will lead you to something that you are passionate about and in the broader aspect of things. And so get, I would say, kind of get swept up in that. The charge on our battery conversation has depleted for today. Thank you very much for joining the third episode of the EcoCar podcast. 
Be sure to follow EcoCar on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube for podcast updates. The EcoCar podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening now. We'll talk to you soon.